1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. I'm Joe McCormick And I am Christian Sager. Hey, and all three of us are back in here again to yeah. talk about the Ig Nobel Prizes. Yeah, part so two. Finish them out. Yeah, this is part two of a two-part episode. If you haven't checked out the first part, you might want to go back and listen to that first. It was the, the last episode we did right before this one. Uh, but if you want to just jump right in the middle, you don't care about any context, don't want to know what the prizes are, you just want to hear about some weird science... Here we are. Yeah, because it's
0: very
2: modular in that respect. And we one study after the other. And we will definitely be talking about weird science today. We are going to be talking about the science of kissing, the science of how many people, uh, how many babies a man could possibly have in a certain period of time of his life, bee stings, dinosaur chickens. <laughs> We're gonna be talking about uh, speed bumps and the pain that they uh, apply to us, right? Yeah. Mm. Oh man! But before we get into that, I want to remind our listeners about our social media presence. So Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, we post all kinds of things on those channels that aren't just our podcast, right? We've got our own blog posts. All three of us write for how stuff works as well outside of this. And we've got videos as well. Plus, we curate all kinds of weird science that we stumble across throughout the day on the internet. Uh, just yesterday, I found some pretty weird stuff about that there's an exoplanet uh, that apparently rains molten iron. Did you guys hear about this? Ooh, yeah, Put it up on our Facebook page there. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So if you want so, you know, keep abreast of all the kind of cool, weird, sciencey things that are happening. Check us out on there. And don't forget, on Fridays at noon, uh, Eastern Standard Time, we will be on the Periscope to live answer your questions and, you know, chit chat, give you a little look behind the scenes here at the Stuff to Blow Your Mind headquarters. Also, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is another place where you can find all of our podcasts, all of our videos, and the amazing blog posts that mainly Robert composes about things from uh, electronic music to monsters and cat buses, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. All that good stuff. All right, so let's uh, let's
0: jump right back into it here and talk about the 2015 Ig Nobel
1: Prize for medicine. Medicine. Well, that was one of the ones that I looked into. And it was actually for a collection of four studies. So there were three by one recipient, and then one by a different group. And they were all studying the scientific consequences of intense kissing and other intimate interpersonal activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you Did can see why. Did they define what the latter was? Yeah. Uh, well, we'll get into that in a okay. minute. But y- you can see why this appealed to the Ig Nobel committee, obviously, because it involves making out and <laughs> right, and sexy. Tell me more. Sex. So uh because there are four of the studies my attention is going to have to be rather summary on these, but the basics of the first group and I'm I'm going to try to say their beautiful Slovakian names, I apologize to these people if I pronounce them horribly, but the first group included Yaroslava Durjakova, Peter Chelech, Natalia Kamodiova, Tatiana Sedlachkova, Gabriela Repiska, Barbara. Visenya, and Gabriel Minarek. And there they are. And they were given the award for their 2012 paper, Prevalence and Persistence of Male DNA Identified in Mixed Saliva Samples After Intense Kissing Hmm. in uh, Forensic Science International Genetics. So their study was an investigation of how much foreign DNA you could expect to find in a woman's mouth after she'd been participating in some, quote, intense kissing. So here's how the study went. They got 12 pairs of volunteers to try out some of this kissing. Okay, and see how it goes, and they they, they practiced were sorry. the were the volunteers couples, or were they uh, just you know I mean, uh, yeah, I think, 12 they, were, random I think people. they were couples, yeah, okay, so they practiced some intense kissing behavior for about two minutes. and then afterwards, the scientists collected saliva samples from the women in the couples to look for the presence of male DNA with modern, highly sensitive molecular methods of DNA detection, like. Multiplex YSTR PCR. I gotta admit, I don't know the first thing about what that is, but I did do a little poking around. It appears to be a real thing. Okay. That is a method for detecting the presence of dna and and for sampling it Mm. so the researchers found that they could uh show the presence of male dna in female saliva 10 minutes after the intense kissing had stopped and even up to 60 minutes after the kissing in some cases
2: so one thing like i'm uh inherently curious about right away is why is it specifically male to female kissing and is there a difference
1: in homosexual kissing I don't know about that, but they they did find that uh, they might not be able to say 60 minutes after the kissing was over... Who the male who was kissing the person was, sure. but they can say this is a male's it's DNA. Was male, okay. And they are focusing on male DNA, DNA in the female mouth, and not the reverse, right? Right. The female DNA. Does that say the something about
0: Slovakian French kissing? Like,
1: well, is it, <laughs> what's in in a less funny way, I think it has to do with the potential application of this study, which is that it okay. would be potentially useful in forensic science. That's uh, what I was thinking, uh, right? In cases of sexual assault that involved mouth to mouth contact. So if a saliva sample can be collected quickly enough it may contain useful dna evidence that could be used against the perpetrator of sexual violence gotcha and and and, you know it's more likely that those
2: perpetrators are going to be male so that's probably why they're zeroing in on that yes okay
0: this is one of those studies where to kind of get into the whole why is it ridiculous why is it funny it's it's kind of like a joke that is funny on the surface and then when you Go to explain the joke. Right. You realize that it's actually really serious and yeah. and, uh, and kind of dark.
1: Yeah, yeah, but I mean, anything that could help uh, oh, yeah. could help bring uh, sexual predators to justice. Though, That's certainly, certainly a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm kind of fascinated by the
2: way that they're isolating this stuff too. Yeah. Know?
1: Yeah, I don't know much about the testing methods that they used, but it seemed to be that they were just, they were applying modern, uh, like the best equipment and best procedures that we have mm-hmm. today looking for the presence of DNA to saliva, which was something that hadn't been done yet. Okay, cool. Uh, but, that but you is, said there are more studies, Yeah, right? that is certainly not all in the kissing and interpersonal contact category because there are also three studies by Dr. Hajime Kimada who operates an allergy clinic in the Osaka prefecture in Japan. And according to an article I read in the Japan Times, Kimata, quote, is continuing to find a more natural method to relieve allergy symptoms for his patients without the use of steroids or prescription skin creams. So, Mm -hmm. like, he seems to be a guy who's interested in finding ways to help people with bad allergies get some relief without so much drugs and medication. Okay. Do you guys have bad allergies? I do, yeah, yeah, uh, not so much. Yeah, I don't really either. So, I, um, my wife has very bad allergies, and so I I can sympathize with her pain and, mm-hmm. and understand uh, what it is like to be out in the spring and want to you know have a have a full body uh, bubble. What, yeah. what do they call that? Bubble boy. Yeah, to to live separate from the world of nature. Uh, but according to his research, he has found some very promising leads on natural methods for uh, for getting some allergy relief. And they okay. involve putting on your copy of Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On. <laughs> uh, but it is not the music itself. That is just a means to an end. So I'll briefly mention the reported results of three studies. The first was called Kissing Reduces Allergic Skin Wheel Responses and Plasma Neurotrophin Levels. Okay. So here's how it goes. You got three groups. You got 30 normal subjects who are a control group. They don't have any bad allergies. You have 30 people with allergic rhinitis, AR, also known as hay fever, or just straight up allergies. Uh, when people say, I have allergies, yeah. this is what they're talking about. Yep. And then you got 30 people with atopic dermatitis, also known as eczema. Okay. And of the latter two groups, all the patients are allergic to Japanese cedar pollen and the house dust mite. And Kamada claims that all of the patients, quote, do not kiss habitually. This seemed to be a a point he was making. I I think it was an assumption about Japanese culture and that like kissing is is at least believed to be not as prevalent in Japanese culture as it is in lots of other cultures. I don't know the extent to which that's true today. Mm. Uh, But that seemed to be an assumption going into his research. That may well be true. That
0: seems to uh, to match up with some uh, materials of research in the past. I mean, it gets kind of complicated because you have all of these varying cultures and kissing traditions. Um, And there's a certain amount of universality, but then there's... Then there's not in some areas, and then you have Western culture rolling into these areas, and you have Western uh, ideals and
1: images yeah. you know, of individuals engaging in these passionate kisses, and
0: that changes everything.
1: Yeah, um, so, so that was what he said, at least. They do not kiss habitually. And he's and, Japanese. Yes, he is. And so <clears throat> the subjects went into a room with their kissing partner of choice, and they, quote, kissed freely. Uh, for 30 minutes while listening to soft music. Wow. And okay. Then, then, uh, so the patients underwent the standard allergist skin prick test. You all ever done these? I have, uh, yeah. They prick your skin to see if you get a wheel response, yeah, a they, raised red area. When they
2: did mine, they,
1: they did like the whole part of my upper left arm
2: and then all across the upper part of my back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then they basically... Prick you with the thing that you're allergic to, and a wheel will rise if you like are. They come in yeah. and they have a crab claw and they jab that in your arm, and then they get some of the to yeah. It's rip just like it a out. cockroach.
1: They're just smashing a cockroach into your arm, pelting them across. Oh, them the, the room. crab claw if you're for shellfish. Yeah, 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 yeah. okay, <laughs> right in the arm. Yeah, so they got the standard skin wheel response test, uh, the, the skin prick test before and after the kissing sessions. Okay. And Kemata claims that the half hour of kissing quote significantly reduced wheel responses. Mm. uh for both the dust mite allergen and the japanese cedar pollen allergen and uh, though it did not reduce responses for the pure inflammatory agent histamine so if you just gave yeah. people histamine directly the uh, the kissing did not help well that makes sense right because you're you're mingling your immune systems a little bit
0: you're you're, hmm. you're mingling your microbiomes so Maybe it seems like one would rub off on the other. You'd have some of the the soldiers would uh, would take up with the new. Well, car. I guess, I, guess I'm I,
2: just,
1: I don't know if I should be surprised by this or not.
2: I, I'm kind of curious since they gave the test before and after. If they just gave it before and then did nothing, and like they didn't make out, and then they gave it to them again <laughs> afterwards, if they would still have the same results, no, you know what I mean? A, yeah, because, that's an interesting question because you're uh, you're getting an exposure. In your system already, right? And then 30 minutes go by and then they, you're exposed and tested again. Mm. So I wonder just how, how much naturally your body
1: would would react less to the inflammation. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, after the end of that, Kamata concluded that kissing, quote, might have some implication in the study of neuroimmunology in allergic patients. Uh, And then there were a couple more studies that were pretty much along the same lines. The second one was called Reduction of Allergic Skin Wheel Responses by Sexual Intercourse in Allergic Patients. This guy is like the mad scientist.
2: (laughs) He's just just coming up with reasons so he can watch people make out and have sex. Oh, I don't think
1: he was watching. Oh, but then clearly the data is erroneous. (laughs) Uh, the study found almost exactly the same thing, except replace 30 minutes of kissing with some sexual intercourse. <laughs> <laughs> um, in allergic people, it reduced skin wheel responses for Japanese cedar pollen and dust mites, but not for pure histamine, so the same pattern mm-hmm. as the other one. And in uh, normal, non allergic people, sex didn't change anything about skin wheel responses. Okay. So, there you got it. What's, what's, uh, Dr. Creepy's third study? The third one, it's, it's pretty much along the same lines. It's kissing selectively decreases allergen-specific IgE production in atopic patients. Again, this is looking at, uh, at like skin responses, like eczema, and he found essentially that kissing could alleviate some allergic symptoms by the decrease of what he calls allergen-specific IgE production. So so basically the the thrust of this guy's work in this area (laughs) is that uh is that kissing and other intimate interpersonal contact may help with your allergies. Okay. All right. Well next time I'm
2: having problems, I guess I'll have to address that with my wife, but I, rather
1: than take a loratadine or whatever it is that I, <laughs> I mean, take on a regular basis, or use my name. I wonder how many minutes of kissing it takes. And thirty at least, apparently. Well, no, maybe maybe it would have been the same with ten minutes of uh, kissing. Yeah, Who knows? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Uh, and so, okay, so if it takes like thirty minutes of kissing, or the people, are there some people who'd be like thirty minutes of kissing? I don't have time for that. Yeah, I'll just seriously. take the drugs.
2: That's work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's a great, I don't know. that's it, a great commercial for like an antihistamine. <laughs> it's just like, would you, do you really have time to kiss someone for 30 minutes or would you just like to drink this NyQuil
1: or yeah. whatever? Uh-huh, yeah, I'll never sleep again. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, this study is a, makes a great segue. I see now why the ignoble. uh, uh, committee put these next to one another. Nice uh, transition segue into the mathematics prize, which is all about uh, a guy named Mule Ismail, the bloodthirsty, who I had not heard of before this. No, I was not familiar with this uh, character either. I mean, he sounds impressive. Well, was he thirsty for blood? Uh, he he was indeed. And I will tell you uh, all about him. The paper itself was written by E. Obern Zocker and K Grammer in 2014 in the case uh, the study is called the case of Mule Ismail fact or fancy and this was also in uh, PLL OS 1 so okay the basics here are that these researchers (laughs) developed a computer simulation program to determine if the myth of Mule Ismail having actually sired 888 children as per the Guinness Book of World Records was true So the Guinness Book of World Records says he sired 888 children. These people want to find out if it's even physically possible for him to do that. They found that he could. And not only that, but he could have much more than 888 children during his lifetime. So he's really an underachiever. Well, actually, uh, no, it turns out uh, that there's reports that he had more. Ah. Uh, They also narrowed down how many times a day he would have to copulate and how many women would need to be part of his harem for this whole operation to work. Wow. Uh, And they used different models. The first model uh, was a random mating pool where he had unrestricted access to women. The second model, though, it was a, quote, restricted harem pool in which uh, basically they took account for as women got pregnant, they would be removed from the harem for at least 18 months to account for their pregnancy and lactation times. And then they used three different models for looking at the likelihood of conception across the female cycle. That's their phrasing, not mine. Uh, but basically the idea is they based these these models on different conditions in which ovulation might happen or like uh, whether or not the sperm would be potent or whether or not there were birth control methods uh, somehow being enacted here. Right. Uh, so the three models that they used are the Wilcox Weinberg model, the Barrett Marshall model, and then the Joshiel, I believe, model. Uh, and they found with uh, these three models that roughly uh, it would take one point four, three times per day with the first one. 1.63 times per day with the second one and only 0.83 times of copulation per day with the third one. So uh, they took into account things like menstruation being a taboo or uh, there's an idea uh, that's been reported on in other research that uh, people are more attracted to one another during ovulation periods hmm. uh, and, and of course the viability of his sperm decreasing per year as he got older. They added all this stuff into their computer simulation model. Uh, and even when restricted to the second model, uh, they found that he would be able to sire the fabled number of offspring. In fact, he would be able to sire at least 1,171 children. Uh, and that his harem, even though it was reported to be 504 women strong... It wouldn't need to be much larger than somewhere between sixty-five to one hundred and ten women for him to achieve this. Uh, that it, it might have been that he he actually did have a harem that was five hundred people, uh, but that that was for other reasons. Uh, potentially, he wanted to keep women out of the reach of other men and their reproductive potential, right? So that he was he was uh, sort of uh, fathering the next generation it was probably rare they also found for each woman in the harem to have had intercourse with him more than once uh because of the large amount of women that were in the harem so you know you you uh, essentially you have uh, intercourse with him you get pregnant you have a child uh there's the lactation period and then uh when the concubines within the harem reached the age of 30 they were uh kicked out isn't the right word but they, they weren't part of the harem anymore. Uh, he didn't want anybody over the age of 30 in his harem. Wow. Yeah. I haven't even gotten to why they call him the bloodthirsty yet. This is just all about his uh, sexual conquests. So uh, Sheriff Ayan, is, he, he, he's referred to as the Sheriff Ayan Emperor of Morocco, Moulay Ishmael the bloodthirsty. He was in power from 1672 to 1727 and became emperor when he was 25. So... He was the first great sultan of the Moroccan wheat dynasty, okay? And Sharifian means that he claimed to be descended from Muhammad, the founder of Islam. His rule was the longest in Moroccan history, and toward the end, he had an army of 150,000 men. He supposedly started his reign by mounting the heads of 400 enemy chiefs at the city of Fez. Uh, over 55 years, he's estimated to have killed 30,000 people, and that's not including those in battle. This is just what? at his whimsy, he killed 30,000 people. Oh, okay. Okay, and I'll give you some examples of that. Uh, any women who are suspected of adultery were strangled personally by him. So oh. that any, any of his concubines or any of his wives who he suspected, he strangled them. Or their breasts were cut off, or their teeth were torn out. Whoa. This included former concubines. So even if you hit the age of 30 and were allowed to leave the harem, you were still not allowed to have uh, intercourse with any other man. So he you know, committed violence against all these so women. He's just, just a real winner. Oh, day. yeah. He's a real uh, cheery individual. Any man who looked at one of his wives—he had four wives and then the five hundred concubines—but any man who looked at the wives or the concubines were punished by the death penalty. I don't think he physically did it himself, as he did with the women, but he was uh, bloodthirsty, as the name you know implies. That's messed up. So uh, they looked at this report, the researchers, that was written by a French diplomat named Dominique Busnot from seventeen oh four. And at the time he was visiting, he said that Moulet had 600 sons with his four wives and 500 concubines. However, only the daughters from his four wives were allowed to live. Those from the concubines were suffocated by the midwives at birth. So he only wanted male offspring from the concubines in total. Uh, even, you know, including all of the, the the children that were, uh you know, supposedly suffocated by these midwives, that comes down to 1,171 children in the span of 32 years. So why is it ridiculous? Well, you know, what do we learn from confirming this legend about this man's sexual prowess, right? That seems pretty weird that they spent all this time looking into this. Right? Yeah,
1: well, I mean, as... As nasty and sensational and uh, and cruel as the details of the story are, I mean, I guess it could be actually interesting from just a, uh, a mathematics of studying population generation perspective. Yeah. Like, if you want to look at at how animal populations uh, reproduce themselves under certain constraints like this one, it might be useful to yeah, you. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or like, sort
0: of like Last
2: Man on Earth scenario or repopulating a world yeah that's yeah. exactly it that they you know there's value to this it's important because they're trying to figure out you know given a certain scenario you know where there's only one man who, who can potentially do this like oh a, a yeah. why the last man quite uh, type scenario
1: you know where actually I feel like this <clears throat> could be useful would be in in uh trying to deal with endangered species oh yes. like yeah. if you if you have a species in captivity where you may only have like one one reproducing male or something like that yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so for comparison,
2: Genghis Khan is another one that's sort of fabled to have had, uh, many sexual encounters and, and subsequent, uh, offspring. Uh, he had so many offspring in the 13th century that, uh, 8% of the men that live currently in the region of his former empire, carry almost identical Y chromosomes to his. And they've figured out that that's 16 million descendants. So you can see now, you know, why trying to do the math on this and, and essentially developing this program so they can, they can map this out is important so that you
1: can figure out a sort of genealogy. Right. So it is actually telling us something about how the world works, not just about the the particulars of this one really nasty guy in history.
2: Yeah, I mean, in fact, like yes, like the the historical narrative of him is you know brutal and and sad. Yeah, I had to look
0: him up while we you were talking just to in the, the hope that he had a sad sati- like a satisfying death for me. Oh. he got his comeuppance. Did he? I, yeah, he just died at, at eighty. The you know, I didn't yeah. see any mention of uh, assassins slicing him to pieces. I
2: believe, I may be wrong about this, but I believe that his dynasty and his descendants are still in power in Morocco. So he's the, you know, progenitor of this dynasty, (laughs) essentially. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. So it's like real life Game of Thrones. Awful individual. I kept thinking about Game of Thrones while I was reading this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, they've got these three different models in this computer program now so that they can apply that to, you know, various other circumstances. And if we're in a circumstance where there's only one man left alive. We know who to turn to to find out how many children they can have to keep the human race going.
0: Alright, well let's, uh, let's move on to the next one. This one uh, is the 2015 Ig Nobel Prize in Biology. And uh, this one, this one is a lot of fun to look into. The actual paper is "Walking Like Dinosaurs: Chickens <laughs> with Artificial Tails Provide Clues About Non-Avian Theropod Locomotion" by Bruno Grassi, Jose uh, Irate Diaz, Omar Larach, uh, Marcurio Canales, and Rodrigo A. Vasquez, and this was uh, published in uh, PLOS One, two thousand fourteen. So, the basics here. Uh, If you want to study dinosaur biology outside of looking at fossil remains, modern birds are a great study aid. Because, of course, birds are pretty much the modern dinosaur, right? You can see the the direct lineage, the evolution. Uh, However, a lot has changed <laughs> with the, with the uh, basic anatomy since the age of the dinosaurs. For instance, living birds maintain an unusually uh, a crouched hind limb posture and locomotion powered by knee flexion. Meanwhile, we generally infer that non-avian theropods from the dinosaur age kept a more uh, upright posture and that their limb movement was powered
2: by femur retraction. So, okay, so I'm thinking velociraptors from Jurassic Park.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, similar similar because that is
2: known for its scientific accuracy, by the way.
0: <laughs> yeah. So we're talking similar build, but we're talking um, you know different ways of motion and, and, yeah. and ultimately different center uh, of mass. And so, in this particular joint U.S. Chilean study, uh, the researchers set out to quote experimentally manipulate the location of the center of mass in living birds. Mm. And what better way to do that than to raise some chickens with artificial tails stuck <laughs> to their bums? <laughs> And, okay. it's key, and it's key here that they were they had the artificial tail during key growth phases. So they would they would stick it on, they stuck it on early, and they kept having to change it up as the bird
2: grew. So for our um, for our audience in in the notes, Robert has inserted a picture of Donald Duck with a plunger on his butt.
0: Yes, and I'm, I'm at, I can't remember exactly which Disney cartoon this is from, <laughs> but it instantly came to my mind, and it uh, it matches up. Pretty perfectly with what they actually did, yeah. Uh, because the tail in the experiment was a did wooden they make st- them wear little sailor outfits too? Sadly not, <laughs> okay. sadly not. But I mean, but they did have a, an elastic fabric coat with Velcro fasteners to hold this on because it's essentially okay. the tail was a wooden stick set in a clay molding uh, base that was then uh, held on with uh, with Velcro and elastic, and they replaced it every five days as the chickens grew. Okay. But, yeah, if you remember Donald Duck with the plunger on his butt, that's exactly what this consisted of. Um, so, the, what, But what this accomplished is that it effectively moved the chicken's center of mass towards the posterior. Mm-hmm. And the chickens did, in fact, demonstrate, quote, a more vertical orientation of the femur during standing and increased uh, femoral displacement during locomotion. So I'd have to go back and rewatch that Disney cartoon. Mm-hmm. But I'm assuming Donald Duck did not walk differently. Uh, that his gait didn't change, his center of mass didn't change in the
2: cartoon based on the plunger. Yeah. But this experiment proved that he would have. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not all that far away from the research that we were looking at last week on the podcast about um, why certain early humans had short legs. Oh, yeah. Because it uh, enabled their center of gravity to be better for fighting and grappling.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's very, very much just about just how the the creature's positioned, and ultimately what the creature is doing. Mm-hmm. A, a chicken, a modern, uh, you know, domesticated chicken versus this uh, this ancient uh, creature. So, why is it funny? Of course, chickens are inherently funny. We all know that. Just the sound of the chicken is funny, and sticking a mm-hmm. plunger on one's butt. Even funnier, especially if it's ultimately about exploring dinosaurs, <laughs> which are generally not inherently funny, but, you know,
2: inherently cool. Do you think there's ever a point with the research in the Ig Nobel Prizes where the researchers kind of sat back one afternoon and they said, all right, let's stick a plunger on a chicken's butt? That's essentially what they did. Mm-hmm. And, and find then, a reason, and then from there work our way back <laughs> to write an academic paper about
1: this, the, the so ex that post it gets into a peer justification of uh-huh. the plunger on the butt. Yeah, yeah.
0: or I, I like the idea of the researchers like, after it's <clears throat> after it's published and they're feeling proud of their work. They end up watching, seeing some Disney cartoons on TV. Yeah, and they're like oh my god, that's where that came. That's from.
2: anatomically inaccurate.
1: <laughs> um, no, I, I believe them. I believe that, that this was done in good faith and for good scientific reasons. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's, it ultimately helps us understand the anatomy uh, of these ancient creatures and uh, help us better understand the evolution that's taken place uh, with this form. Um, and they also point out that through, um, uh, Careful of uh, uh, phenotypic uh, manipulation of uh, of of our modern birds, we can actually quote open new avenues of experimental investigation into unexplored faucets of dinosaur lo- uh, locomotor mechanics
1: and energetics. So, so unless I'm misunderstanding that, they're saying we can genetically engineer birds to turn back into dinosaurs. Yeah, that's I mean that's Ooh. some um,
0: some research that's been on the table for for a while. But there are various uh, various ways you can sort of turn. Uh, turn various uh, genetic and epigenetic traits on and off and s- harken back to earlier uh, morphological modes. Well, as yeah. I learned in
2: Jurassic World, these have, uh, the, you know, military, uh, possibilities. <laughs> you could send in a pack of these, uh, genetically modified birds and
1: to, uh, take out some enemies of the state. So I have a question for you guys. Mm. It always happens in the movies that the military is interested in the creation of monsters that kill people. Yeah. Has there ever been a real military experiment in creating monsters that kill people?
0: Um, um, to a certain extent, you can look at uh, various uh, projects that involved using animals as uh, explosive delivery devices. Are you also yeah. using uh, animals as uh,
1: spy devices? That's true. Yeah, you got your spy pigeons. You mm-hmm. got your uh, dog that runs under a tank with a bomb on its right. back. Yeah. But but I mean like giant scorpions. Um, this sounds like... You get into some sort of gray areas
0: here... <laughs> You know, in terms of how much of this is actually is is there any truth to it and how much of it is just hearsay and mythology right? You do see some um, and this is a whole separate podcast, but you do see some some arguments that the Soviets were interested in creating some sort of a man ape oh, yeah. um, you know hybrid that would have probably if you give those stories any credence, they would have probably been used for labor. And I'm not sure I give those stories any credence.
2: I uh, feel like this is something we need to do some more research yeah. and, and tackle for an episode. It sounds like but, you I just
1: their gold. All the best movies begin with a creature that's designed by the military yeah. as yeah. a weapon, but then gets loose on an airplane. Yeah. yeah. Species. Oh, no, well, it's species, they, it's an alien. Don't
2: they get it from, like, yeah, it's like an alien, like,
1: uh, code? But the military are the ones who are developing oh, it, I think. man, that movie. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, getting back to the study with the the chicken with the plunger on its butt, I do think, I don't know, it's interesting because having great movies like Jurassic Park and stuff, we can forget that we've never actually seen a dinosaur move yeah with, with, right. That's right because yeah. the movies are so good and they stick in the mind, we think we've seen what it's like for a Tyrannosaurus Rex to walk, but we haven't we don't know what it would be like right so
0: we've seen those illustrations we've seen yeah. um, representations of how we think they move but again all of that is is based on looking at the fossil remains comparing those to uh, existing uh, creatures and this is uh this is an experiment that kind of bridges the gap between the
1: two yeah. Hey, so I think it's time to take a quick break to hear about our sponsor for this episode. But after that, we're going to come right back and talk about more weird science. Okay, well, I think if it's time to talk about the next award... This next one was the prize given in physiology and entomology. So that's kind of a weird mixture, the mm-hmm. uh, study of the, the body and study of insects. And the essential unifying factor here is insect stings, stinging insects and the pain they inflict. Okay. Uh, so there were, there were two different recipients uh, for, for different studies on this award. It was Dr. Justin O. Schmidt was the first one, and then also Michael L. Smith, So Schmidt is an American entomologist who's been studying stinging insects like wasps, ants, bees for decades, a long time. And over the course of his career, he's been stung a lot. He's been stung just inadvertently. It happens. I think there are some people who have reported that he he set out intentionally to get himself stung by a thousand different insects, and that's not necessarily true, but over the course of his career he has been inadvertently stung more than a thousand times and he's ranked the stings of dozens of insects. The last figure I saw was (laughs) 78 different insect species by the level of pain inflicted by the sting. So this is purely subjective based on his experience of the stings. Yes, both of these studies are going to be inherently subjective, but but at the same time, mm-hmm. I think useful because, uh, I mean, there are lots of phenomena we study that are inherently subjective. but well, pain by itself is difficult yeah. to, to classify in this regard. Yeah, they're inherently... Pain, you don't know the meaning of the word. Right. They're they're inherently subjective, but you can you can see trends emerge. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you have a bunch of people rate pain, you'll eventually discover that it does actually hurt more on average to get hit in the head with a hammer than it does to get flicked in the cheek or something. Okay, right. yeah. Uh, but anyway, the scale. He he created a scale that's known as the uh, Schmidt Sting Pain Index, and so the scale goes from zero to four. A zero is no effect at all. A one is kind of a, a small little spark of pain, like a sweat bee or gotcha. something. Yeah. A two is going to be a, for a common sting like the sting of a honeybee, of uh, Apis mellifera. A three is is a more kind of intense, powerful really troubling pain, and there there are a bunch of insects he lists that can give stings like that. And then a four is just melt-your-brain pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, an mm-hmm. example of level four is the tropical bullet ant, Paraponera clavata, okay, which is pain that it's been described in a lot of ways. I want to sort of summarize the things I've read about it by saying it's like having a hot nail shoved into your bones and Ooh. the pain lasts for 24 hours. All right. There is. in Speaking fact, of animals that we could utilize for military purposes. Oh yeah, yeah. bullet ants. Yeah, mm-hmm. make uh, some giant bullet ants. Also, around four is the tarantula hawk, which you can actually mm-hmm. run into in the United States. I think in the Southwest. Really, and this stuff is like if it'll if it stings you, it's just unbearable. It's but not lethal, right? Right. Okay. Uh, well, I don't know if it, if it's impossible for it to be lethal, but I haven't read anything about it being lethal. Okay. It's, I mean, at least not regularly. Yeah, n- not to a, a, a person who doesn't have an existing uh, allergic reaction. Right. Right, yeah. Uh, and so there's actually, if you want to read it, there are plenty of places out on the Internet where the Schmidt sting pain scale has been supplemented with these kind of uh, wine-tasting-style descriptions that originally <laughs> came out of uh, an article that he gave some quotes to in the 1990s. And it it's pretty funny. I'm not going to read through all of them here, but uh-huh. it would know, be like, oh, sort of like light, fruity pain. <laughs> <laughs> it had a flutter of strawberries. Right. Like, uh, what's that movie, Sideways? Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. You know, I can imagine a future where you'll have uh, the human race, it's so jaded by pleasurable sensations yeah. that they, they do have to explore. It's the Cenobites, yeah, uh-huh.
1: exploring the uh, the limits of pleasure and pain intertwined. But anyways, Schmidt first published a version of his Sting Pain Index in the 1983 paper, Hemolytic Activities of Stinging Insect Venoms, in uh, the journal Insect Biochemistry and Physiology. And he has since expanded and refined his scale in some subsequent publications. And so now it's pretty big. You know, it's got at least 78 insects. He may have added more since then. Mm -hmm. Uh, But while there is some inherent subjectivity to this, I think it's interesting that it's useful to have ways – of characterizing the levels of inflicted pain by different insects so that we can study things like insect venom and its effects. If you don't have something like a sting pain scale, how do you begin to study it, it, the relationship between like venom compounds and sting pain? Or treatment. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Leading to to treatment studies. Yeah. But one of the things that Schmidt had acknowledged in some of his earlier work is that different sting locations on the body will make a difference. But he didn't try to formulate a scale to reflect that you know, the map of pain right. across the body. Well, in 2014... Dude, that's that's my, <laughs> n- my new horror uh, story, map of pain. Oh, no, it makes me think about uh, Jeffrey Combs and the Frighteners. <laughs> uh, my body is a road map of pain. <laughs> uh, but in, uh, in, in 2014, a Cornell graduate student in neurobiology and behavior named Michael L. Smith published a paper... Exploring this theme, which it was a different variable on the same question. So instead of measuring the relative pain experience of stings inflicted by different insects, he decided to measure the difference of pain inflicted by the same insect stinging different places on the body. Okay. On himself. Okay. So, Smith had been studying honeybee behavior in evolution, Mm -hmm. and according to an interview he gave to National Geographic, he was inspired to do this experiment after a bee flew up his shorts and stung him in the testicles. That would definitely be an, an inspiring
2: situation. M- Moment yeah. of silence for Michael L. Smith and his testicles. Yeah. So the
1: paper he oh it doesn't stop there because oh, the, really? the paper he wrote is called Honey Bee Sting Pain Index by Body Location. Mm. Uh, you can read the full text online. It's available for free, and it is it's it's certainly not going to win an award for like the most rigorous methodology in the world because the number of subjects is one, the author himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reporting is inherently subjective, as we've been talking about. Uh, all of this in, admitted in good humor by the author. It's not like he's trying to make a bigger deal of it than right. it is. Yeah, is. Yeah. Uh, but it, it is a pretty fun read if you're interested in some dry humor. Uh, a great example is in his methods section. He says, Cornell University's Human Research Protection Program does not have a policy regarding researcher (laughs) self-experimentation, so this research was not subject to review from their offices. The methods do not conflict with the Helsinki Declaration of 1975, (laughs) revised in 1983. The author was the only person stung, was aware of all associated risks therein, gave his consent, and is aware that these results will be made public. Okay. (laughs) Um, So his method was pretty interesting. Uh, the research was carried out in 2012, and Smith picked 25 different locations on the body to test with the standard stimulus of a honeybee sting. And the honeybee sting is a good choice for a standard stimulus because it's right in the middle of the Schmidt scale. You remember, it goes right? I was going to zero say four. that's like a two. Yeah, so it's right in the middle. It's it hurts. Uh, But it's not blinding pain. Okay. I'm guessing it's also easy to control the number of stings. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's true also. And it's a familiar reference point for many people in the world. A lot of people have been stung by honeybees. Mm -hmm. So during the test, Smith goaded bees to sting him five times every day. Uh, always between 9 a.m. and 10 a.m. to avoid the, the sort of pain perception variance that could be related to time of day. It's possible that you might feel more pain in the evening or something. Gotcha. So between 9 and Wait, 10. sorry,
2: back up for a second. Why would that be because of, like, uh, a weather pressure? just He just pressure. wanted, he just oh, wanted okay. to eliminate that oh, variable. Oh, so he just
1: had a, yeah. Okay, gotcha. So it's always between 9 and 10 a.m. He'd get stung five times, and the sting session would start with a calibration sting on the forearm, which uh, he used as his internal standard, he gave the forearm sting a 5.0 pain rating out of 10. And so that's right in the middle. So all of the Mm -hmm. other stings were rated relative to what it feels like to get stung right on the forearm by a honeybee. Uh, Is it worse? Is it not as bad? And then he, so he rated the test locations relative to that. And then he would sting himself three times in various test locations with a calibration sting before and after on the forearm. So I have a question. Yeah. Um, How do you goad the bees to sting you in specific ways? Oh, I'm getting to that part. Okay. In fact, just let me read you a quote straight yeah, hit <laughs> from me. his materials. Quote, Bees were taken from the cage haphazardly with forceps. <laughs> to, <laughs> to apply the sting, the bee was grabbed by the wings and pressed against the desired sting location. The bee was held against the sting location until the sting was first felt and kept at the location for five seconds to ensure that the stinger would penetrate the skin. The bee was pulled away after five seconds, leaving the stinger in the skin. The stinger was left in the skin for one minute and then removed with forceps. So he just pinned a bee to him. He thought it out. And then he made a road map of pain. Oh, we're looking at the map of pain now. Yeah, so it marks all the places on the body where he stung himself. And it's pretty funny to imagine uh, how he got the bee to sting him, for example, on the buttocks and the back of the neck. And there must have been some kind of... He must uh, have had help, right? He probably had like a like an intern. I don't know. He didn't say anything about that. No? Okay. Uh, but anyway, he found some results. So out of the 25 places, he he found that the least painful places to get stung were the skull, mm-hmm. huh. the middle toe tip, and the upper arm.
0: That's interesting, because I would have thought the buttock for some reason, you know? I mean, that seems like a great
1: right. area yeah. to take it. And then he found that the three most painful locations were the nostril, the upper lip, and the penis shaft. Okay, uh, which got a 9.0 out of 10 for the nostril, an 8.7 for the upper lip, and a 7.3 for the penis shaft. It, wow, I wouldn't sounds, have thought
0: about the nostril being that bad.
1: But, yeah, yeah. He, I, I'm going to get to the nostril in a minute. Uh, so Smith found that for him, uh, a few things were interestingly ruled out. He found that the side of the body was not a significant factor in pain perception, uh, so left or right doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, he found that the date of stinging did not matter, and the order of stinging per round did not matter. The most significant factor in pain variation was, as predicted, the location of the sting. So in short, it doesn't much matter whether you get stung on Wednesday and Thursday. It matters if you get stung on the knee or on the nipple. Okay. And so I wanted to do a little test and see if you guys can guess the following without looking. Okay. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you three places to get stung and see if you can rank them in order of least painful to most painful. Okay. Okay. Upper thigh, foot arch, so the instep, the sole of your foot, foot Mm -hmm. arch, and behind the ear. Oh. Hmm. I would, do you want us both to do it? Yeah. I would say
0: arch as of the foot is worse, and then and then behind the ear, and then thigh.
2: Yeah, I'm kind of going based on um, uh, people I know who've had tattoos uh, done in those areas and how much pain they experience, and so I think it's going to be
1: behind the ear, foot arch, and then the thigh, and at the end. Uh no, so they were all pretty close, but it was actually in the order I said. The least painful was the upper thigh. Right. The uh second most painful was the foot arch and then the most painful was behind the ear. Okay, oh, that,
0: that's that, the order that, that you said. Yeah, oh, yeah I'm that's sorry. what I meant. I, I
1: just was doing it in reverse order. Oh, sorry, yeah. Uh so that's 4.7, 5.0 and 5.3 respectively. All pretty close. All not, not kind not of very in the middle off. there, huh? Yeah. Huh. Not very far off. Now I got three more for you. so okay. you can do these. Scrotum, mm-hmm. buttock, nipple. Okay, from least to
0: most. Yeah, I've got to go buttock,
1: nipple, scrotum. Would you agree, Christian? I
2: no uh, I, I, uh, least to worst buttock, uh, scrotum, nipple
1: for me. Okay, Robert was right. It goes oh. buttock nipple, scrotum, though nipple and scrotum are very close. Hmm. The scrotum was a 7.0 out of 10, the nipple 6.7, and the buttock 3.7. Okay. Uh, he points out also in the paper that this is limited by also male anatomy, so yeah. he's having stings on locations that a woman yeah. couldn't get stung on. I'm curious about the gender applications yeah, here. And yeah. he, and he, he
2: couldn't convince any of his female colleagues to... He, he couldn't convince anybody, apparently. I don't know yeah. if he tried. Yeah, but this it was... is the kind of study where you might <laughs> realize... I'm the only one who's
0: going to be game for this.
1: Well, you know, he as he kind of pointed out, like it would probably introduce complications with ethics uh, review yeah. if he was yeah. trying to get other people to submit to this. So he just did it to himself, and in the spirit of science, I think it's interesting what he found. Uh, why it's ridiculous, that's fairly obvious, because it involves grabbing bees with tweezers and pressing them against your nipples until they attack. Um, <laughs> I what? just, like, I kind of
2: wish, and I don't know, like, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but he was, like, documenting the whole thing, and that there's just, like, like 20 years from now, this series of photos is going to come out of him, like, with the forceps, applying them in various areas. <laughs> or the, the audio, I would just... Like oh, yeah, that'd be good, about. too. Uh, yeah. That's just a whole podcast on its own. Just Just...
1: Getting stung by bees in different areas and listening to people <laughs> yell in pain. Uh, yeah, so I think that this actually is, believe it or not, it, despite the small sample size and the subjective nature of it, I do think it's interesting research. Yeah. Uh, the, the, both the Schmidt Sting Pain Index and the subsequent, uh, body roadmap of pain, uh, because they're, Certainly not as objective as like taking your temperature with a thermometer or measuring your white cell count or something, but they're important for helping us characterize the relationship between insects, venoms, and the subjective sensations they produce. Uh, it would be more useful in the future probably to repeat these same types of experiments just with larger sample sizes, just get more people to get stung and report how much pain they felt, but again, yeah. that that presents an experimental problem. It's hard to get an experiment like that. Done. Ethically, yeah. It, but if you
2: combine uh, Schmidt's research, yeah. his his pain index and this, you you get like a fairly interesting uh, roadmap of pain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you I mean, really you know,
0: ultimately, I mean, that's what it's it's about. Yeah. You're mapping an unmapped area, which kind of
2: goes back to the slime mold analogy. I made yeah. for science. So. What if it was scorpions? Oh, I don't know. That's maybe that's his next project.
1: Well, any, there, this there is are, like the, there are... the
2: jackass of academic <laughs> studies.
1: <laughs> yeah, getting uh, getting like hit in the face. Yeah, like it.
2: Johnny Knoxville publishes in PLOS One. <laughs> like, <laughs> like this is what happens when you jump off a trampoline when you're naked
1: into a pit of snakes. I don't think they do the snakes. No, no. They do it. They do a, a bit of, of nails. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, though, a, another interesting takeaway from this was not just about the venom and the sting pain, but about human responses. Okay. So one of the things that. Smith pointed out in his research was that it's kind of weird how the most painful sting of all of them was a sting to the nostril. Mm. Yeah. He says that it was the especially violent. It was a 9.0 out of 10. Uh, he really did not want to repeat that one, though he, he knew he had to for the experiment, uh, and he was not looking forward to it. But he said that the nostril stings were especially violent, immediately inducing sneezing, tears, and a copious flow of mucus. Mm. Uh, and then he also points. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. That your nerve endings are probably fairly sensitive.
1: Yeah. Advantages. And he's, he says the sting did autotomize in the nostril, meaning it it cut itself off, so the stinger gets separated, mm-hmm. um, and then the bee is removed, but the stinger stays in. Uh, and he mentions that the copious flow of mucus, however, may help prevent subsequent stings to the area during a natural attack. Yeah. So that's something that we might now understand better about humans, mm-hmm. in this scenario where if you're actually getting stung by bees in the wild, putting all this mucus out might prevent more bees from stinging you in that place. Huh. That's, a, that's, a good, that's a good idea. Yeah.
2: I think it requires further research.
1: <laughs> by some, some brave or uh, yeah. foolish individual. Well, so anyway, I very much enjoyed reading about that, and I hope that there is at least one more study about pain. Oh, there is. Yes, our final study here is the uh, 2015
0: Ig Nobel Prize for Diagnostic Medicine, and uh, it deals entirely with uh, speed bumps and appendicitis. Cool. So <laughs> the actual – and this is – I was really fascinated by this because I uh, I have not suffered appendicitis. I have not had my appendix out, uh, so I can't directly relate to the pain. And I'm ha- and kind of like my other last day, I'm having to just go on these subjective accounts of what that pain is like. Um the paper in question here is Pain Over Speed Bumps in Diagnosis of Acute Appendicitis, Colon Diagnostic Accuracy Study. And this is from uh, Helen F. Ashdown, Nigel uh, De Sousa, uh, Delilah Karam, Richard J. Stevens, Andrew Huang, and Anthony Harnden. And uh, these are all researchers uh, from the uh, University of Oxford and Stoke uh, Mandeville Hospital. Okay. So, here's the basic deal. You have acute appendicitis, all right? And it's it's this is actually the most common surgical abdominal emergency. Mm-hmm. And rapid diagnosis of appendicitis is critical because the more time that passes between diagnosis and surgical treatment, the greater the risk for complications and even death. Yeah. You got to get it fixed quick. Right. And then this is where it gets trickier. There's no specific clinical diagnostic test for appendicitis. We don't have a device that you can point at the body. There's not a blood test. Most, all of it has to. Dep- it just depends on the doctor talking to somebody, mm-hmm. getting their uh, subjective feedback about the pain they're experiencing, okay. and then the doctor has to has to make a call. Do we do we cut them open? Do we not cut them open? Do right. We perform the surgery? Or do we or do, or do we not? And As a result, the rate of negative uh, appendectomy, that's surgery performed on a healthy appendix, uh, ranges from 4% to 42%. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So (laughs) clinical diagnosis, especially that early diagnosis, can be challenging. Yeah. Because you want to catch it early. But you, if it's, it's early, it's going to be harder to determine if that's actually what's going on. And you don't mm-hmm. want to remove uh, a healthy appendix. You don't want to un- perform unnecessary surgery on people for a variety of reasons. So one possibility emerges here, and that is the role of speed bumps. Because as it turns <laughs> out, well- you mean literal speed bumps? Literal speed bumps, On the road. Lumps of asphalt that make your car, or your truck, or bus go blah, 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 up and down. Okay. Because as it turns out, individuals coming into the hospital for uh, appendicitis or suspected appendicitis often find those speed bumps really painful to go
2: over. And uh, uh, emergency rooms have lots of speed bumps in front of them, usually. Yeah. I, I think so. That, that would make sense. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, like
1: the no-wake sign of the hospital. You don't <laughs> want people zooming around. <clears throat>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So as it turns out, some doctors actually incorporate this into their uh, diagnostics. Uh, When asking somebody about their pain, trying to determine if uh, they have appendicitis, they might ask them, well, what was it like going over the the speed bump uh, or the series of speed bumps coming into the hospital? Yeah. So That's why those speed bumps
2: are there, solely (laughs) to diagnose appendicitis. Well,
0: it makes you, in this study, will I think ultimately make you think that any hospital that doesn't have speed bumps needs them. Yeah. What they did is they decided to look into this, right, to see if there's any actual validity to doctors asking about this. Um, should a doc should all doctors ask about speed bumps uh, and and abdominal pain? So, this is a really fun paper. Um, I'm not going to read the whole intro, but I also really love that it has one of these very clinical intros that defines what a speed bump is uh, <laughs> and why we have them. Um, But uh, the study itself examined 101 patients who were referred uh, to the hospital for suspected appendicitis. Testing took place in 2012, and patients were between 17 and 76 years of age. Patients were classed as speed bump positive if they had a <laughs> worsening of pain uh, while traveling over the speed bumps. Okay. And they were classified as speed bump negative if their pain stayed the same, if they were unsure, or if the, their pain improved. Wait a second. There are people improved. who were like, oh, God, oh, I feel better. Oh, wait, be back on the wait, speed ba- bump. Back,
2: back up for a second it was on just that gas speed bump. I think, you know? I think we got it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so all the participants were then questioned within 24 hours of their journey to the hospital. So these are the findings. 64 patients traveled over speed bumps on their way to the hospital. 54 of those, 84%, were speed bump positive. 34 of the 64 had a confirmed diagnosis of acute appendicitis in which 33, that's 97%, had worsened pain over speed bumps. Mm. Seven patients who were speed bump positive did not have appendicitis, but they did have other significant problems such as uh, ruptured ovarian cyst or diverticulitis. So in the end, they concluded that an increase in pain over speed bumps is associated with an increased likelihood of acute appendicitis, and it should be a key part of any
2: doctor's questioning during diagnosis. Huh. This is is one of those ones that seems... Well, first of all, I just used huh in, in the way that wasn't diagnosed in the uh, previous report. But also, uh, this is one of the ones that just seems like common sense, that you wouldn't need uh, an academic uh, a rigorous investigation done.
1: Well, but it's a good thing they yeah, did, because now we know.
0: It, it's one of those where science is coming in and saying, yeah, it's like, we well, we know what's down that hallway. Do yeah. we really need science to check it? Well, yeah, we do, because you can yeah. imagine a scenario where uh, the research would have said the opposite and said, actually, it's just willy-nilly one way or the other. This is no better than some you know medieval technique of uh, questioning
1: the humors, you know? Yeah, our, I mean, I, that is a standard response that I pretty much always oppose when people say, like, oh, we didn't need a study to show this. This is obvious. I mean, w- when you say that, it just sounds like you're saying our intuitions are good enough. Our intuitions are not good enough. Our intuitions are wrong all the time. This is like what science is good for is figuring out whether or not your intuitions are correct.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, but this also gets into why this study is funny and ridiculous. Because yeah. mm-hmm. the idea of a speed bump, a lump of asphalt uh, serving as a diagnostic tool in uh, in diagnosing a very real and very dangerous uh, condition uh, – I mean, there is something just ridiculous about that. And then, of course, it all ties back into the idea that we don't have a, a better diagnostic uh, system for right. appendicitis.
2: Right, yeah, like they don't have a, a a way to test this other than asking them what their experience was like hitting the speed bump on the way in. Well, I wonder what, like if models of vehicles come into play, you know, like if you're in mm-hmm. a Range Rover going over a speed bump versus a Dodge Challenger. Yeah. What, you know?
1: Oh, yeah, like you yeah, the suspension in your car sure. that would
0: definitely be a factor yeah mm-hmm. it it makes me wonder too if there's a if they might just create some sort of like funky Halloween chair that you set in in yeah. the doctor's office that kind of I just
2: say does that, that hurt does that yeah. hurt
1: does that hurt sit in the bump chair yeah. <laughs> um yes, yeah, so, I mean it's a. Oh, man, I can't wait for the scene in the James Bond movie where somebody, they get him to test the bump chair, but then one of the henchmen tries to kill him by turning the bump chair all the way up, like in Moonraker, and they put him <laughs> in the G-Force simulator. <laughs> that would be good. But it, wouldn't he have to have a, an appendicitis for it to work? No, no, It could <laughs> just bump him just... to death. Oh, you know, okay. <laughs> with the sheer forces of it. <laughs> okay. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? I Moonraker, where you yeah, see yeah, Roger Moore going I like, exactly Whoa! what
0: you mean, yeah. I need to see that one again because oh, it's it's, so I used bad. to think it was the worst, but maybe it's the best. Because I've kind of gotten to the point in my life where I, I don't know that I like any of the James Bond films. So maybe I need to see the, the worst of them to appreciate
2: the, the I love. Again. I was just talking about this with a friend the other day. It's I, it's I really, loved bad. Moonraker when I was a little <laughs> kid, but I don't know that it would, it would hold up now. All right,
0: so there you have it. Hey, uh, if you want to check out each of these studies in more detail, check out the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. We'll make sure that there are links to related content on the website, to the How Stuff Works article about the Ig Nobel Prizes that I wrote years ago, uh, and
2: uh, more to the point, links out to the specific uh, pieces of research that are referenced here. Yeah, and while you're there at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, you can check out our blog posts, other episodes of the podcast, videos, we've got all that stuff. Plus, you know what's on uh, StuffToBlowYourMind.com? Links to all of our social media channels such as Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, where you can find us under the handle Blow the Mind.
1: And if you want to email us with your feedback about the episode we recorded today or part one that we did last time, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.